Hello, and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm going to be speaking with Ella Reisner-Bosch, the author of Robot Futures. Ella Reisner-Bosch is professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon University, where he also directs the Community Robotics, Education, and Technology Empowerment Lab. He's the co-author of Introduction to Autonomous and Mobile Robots, which was also published by the MIT Press. Ella Reisner-Bosch, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. It's a pleasure. You know, I imagine that when most people think about robots that consumers might interact with in the future, their mind's eye drifts to images we've seen in science fiction and film and television, with robots having a somewhat human countenance. Is this how we should think about robots in the next 50 years? Actually, I don't think it's the right way to think about robots, and I definitely agree with you that Hollywood and a lot of the science fiction books that I grew up on and loved have really made us think of robots as androids, as as human-like forms. And actually, there's a lot of researchers around the world that are trying really hard to make robots that are as human-like as possible. Uh, In fact, what's really coming uh, down the line, and it's coming really soon, like this year and next year, are uh, robotic technologies that change the entertainment technologies, educational technologies, and even the interactive systems around us every single day. So robots, in a way are going to disappear into the woodwork some and change the way we talk to each other. They're going to change uh, the way we order dinner. They're going to change the way we think about interacting with our family and friends. The reason I wrote the book is really because I think this new evolution of robots that are going to disappear into our world and change our world, sort of turn it popularity, I think that's something we should all be talking and thinking about. And so I wanted that kind of discourse to begin. You know, if someone were to ask me what I think a robot is, I would say a machine that operates in the physical world, unlike, say, a smartphone, which might be able to augment reality through the Internet. Is that a realistic division to make about robots? I think that's a really good way to think about it. But what's interesting about it is that robots used to be things we thought of as all physical. So robots were this physical thing, like a a moving, talking C-3PO or R2-D2. And that made them totally different from Internet devices or, or an app that you might have on an iPad. In fact, what robots have become, which is, which is really interesting, they've become devices that actually glue our digital and physical worlds together. So what's interesting about robotics today is that robots have physical form, they have tangible interaction, but they also connect to the Internet world, and so they allow us to actually seek out connections to the Internet, do telepresence, you know, control our house, one way to think about it is, is to think of anything as a robot that has sensors in the physical world may be connected to the digital world, but it can actually push back on the physical world. It can make changes to our world, the, the part that we actually live in and care about. So is this why you wrote that in the future, when we meet a robot, we should assume they know more about us than we know about them? It's a funny part of robotics. That's right. We're all going to be weird rock stars. Uh, it's it's, it's an, a metaphor that I use in the book, which is that in the world of, of Hollywood actors and actresses and rock stars, every time somebody says hi to them, they know that that person has gone off and researched them and might know all about little details of their lives, whereas they know nothing about that person. That person is just a, a new blank slate as far as they're concerned. It's very asymmetric. It's different from the lives you and I lead. And the funny bit about robots is that robots will be connected with the cloud. And when you see a robot on the street and it says hi to you and it says hi, Ela, that robot might know about your purchasing habits. It might know where you were this morning because tracking was on on your, on your smartphone. So it's going to know a ton more information about you than you ever have it be the case with people that you run into that are strangers to you. And so we're going to have this asymmetry, a constant asymmetry, where these robots know about us. It's going to be a new kind of rock star uh, phenomenon that 
I'm not sure it will be very comfortable for us. While reading this book, I started to think about the movie Minority Report. If we meet a camera that has facial recognition software and starts producing ambient advertising for us, should we think about that camera as a robot, or is ambient advertising still a long way off? Actually, it's pretty close. What's amazing about this Minority Report-style ambient advertising is that we have major research corporations already working on it, funding work, we have papers being published on it already. And what's, what's powerful about it is that mobile advertisement isn't just tracking you based on your smartphone or your little RFID under your skin. Um, it can actually do face recognition. It can look at your eyeballs, and it can tell whether it's presenting something on its screen that you're looking at or whether it's not attractive enough to attract your gaze. And that means that these ambient advertising systems are going to be active. They're not that ambient. They're actually doing experiments on us, figuring out what really attracts us, and then reinforcing that by pushing more and more similar content to us. You know, we love it when we go to uh, a site like Netflix and we take a movie we like and it suggests other movies that we might like. That's fun because it's, it's giving us similar entertainment that, that has good value for us. But what about when advertising customizes something for us, figures out exactly how to press our buttons, and, and keeps banging those buttons and refining that so that you just, you're glued to it. You can't take your eyes away because it keeps showing you exactly the things that you care about most. In a way, you become kind of like a puppet for that advertiser. And that can be a very odd feeling. So Minority Report comes alive that way because it's a robot, because it's not just uh, presenting information. It's actually looking at you, analyzing your behavior, and then refining its own behavior so it can get the best possible result out of you. You work at one of the premier robotics labs in the world at Carnegie Mellon. But in one of your chapters, you examine what happens when Joe and Jane six-packs begin to start hacking robots. What would have to happen for the level of robot hackability to drop so that just about anybody could do it? It's funny. Robots are becoming so incredibly easy to build thanks to systems like Arduinos and servos and Lego Mindstorms. But this stuff is at an inflection point. You can buy much more powerful motors today as regular Joe six-pack than you could 10 years ago. And it's easy to control a device with those motors on it. Pretty soon, we're going to have walking and jumping robots that you can buy. We already can go to cheap toy stores in any developing world and buy a quad rotor that you can control from your smartphone. We can already do that today. And yet we don't have laws or even a system of ethics around that that says, when is it okay for me to fly that quad rotor over my neighbor's yard and take pictures? When is that okay? When is that not okay? The Technological advancements in the connections between the digital and the physical world, thanks to our smartphones, thanks to the microprocessors that are so much more powerful and cheap than they used to be, basically are making it possible for us to build more and more uh, effective robots that are, that are able to do more and more things we haven't even thought of yet. They can solve problems we never had. And the more problems we solve that we've never had, the more problematic situations we're going to encounter, where we start to wonder, is this something we actually want people to do? What's funny about this is we've had this in the Internet world for a long time. You can make a website and say whatever you want. And one weird side effect that it has is that people that have very odd uh, likes can find each other on the Internet. You know, suddenly you can have people who have some strange behavior actually find other people that have that same strange behavior. It can be a little bit reinforcing in a weird way. Well, that's all kind of in the walled garden of the Internet today. But when you can build robots that do just about anything you wanted to do, like uh, hunt down ants in the local park and eat them. <laughs> the problem is you can find tons of people who want to do that, and they can just go do that. Before you know it, you've changed the biodiversity of ants in a particular garden or park in Pittsburgh. 
This is all making me think of the early days of aviation when there were no established laws about flying, and there were many flights, and there were many fights over exactly how high into airspace a person could reasonably expect privacy. Hearing all this makes me think that if anybody's going to make money off of robots, it'll be the attorneys. That's right. It's interesting. Already, uh, remote-controlled drones have, have changed the legal architecture of, of how we think about legality of our homes. There was an interesting case, I think it was in Los Angeles, where the police department bought a drone. And they were just test flying it. And as they test flew it above somebody's house in L.A., they noticed a marijuana field behind a wall. And so they went and arrested the guy. And then this case went all the way to, I think, the state Supreme Court, maybe. It was an interesting case because the guy said they didn't have a warrant to search my house. And they had a high wall around the house. So they would have had to have a warrant to actually see the marijuana plants. And by looking down from the drone, they were breaking my privacy. They were violating my privacy. In the end, the Supreme Court said, now that drones are commonly available, you no longer have the expectation of vertical privacy. So the only way you would have needed a warrant to go there is if he had had a roof over the top of the marijuana plants. <laughs> so the technology is changing and redefining the boundaries of what is and isn't private, just because it's available commonly and therefore anybody can buy it. So yeah, the technology will change what is or isn't legal for the police to do, but also for, for you and your neighbor to do to each other. And unfortunately, we're going to be playing, playing a constant game of catch-up, where we're going to break boundaries that we have as common sense, and only then are we going to start to question this and try and put laws in place. That's part of the reason to write the book, is to try and get people to actually think about these crazy possibilities that are going to be, going to be not so crazy in the next decade or so early, so that maybe we can proactively think through what we actually want to be the case before we just kind of rumble right into some crazy future. Well, those are some of the legal issues. But in this book, you also talk about ethics. Is there an ethical problem about robot futures that disturb you most? Yeah, the ethical issue that disturbs me most has to do with this chapter I wrote called Dehumanizing Robots. There's this weird phenomena that we have. Today, the only animals that we socially interact with in a very, very deep social sense are people. We have pets, and we interact with them in a certain way. But there's only one thing that we talk to in long, complex sentences, gesture at, and, and make eye contact with this way, like have conversations that you and I are having right now. That's people. That's about to change. We're going to have robots that are more and more effective at having conversations with us, and those robots are going to be cheaper to run than people. So lots of places that hire people right now to interact with you and me, like a mechanic station, like AAA, they're going to end up eventually with robots that do that instead of people. What's weird about that is that we, as human beings, are going to have to have social interaction with, with a whole new alien species called robots. <laughs> and we're going to behave differently with the robots than we do with people. It's very likely that we're going to be a little ruder to the robots. We're going to cut them off. We're going to lose some of the social niceties. There's this weird ethical reference point we get to, which constantly reminds me of the world of slavery, of the world of dehumanization that... that much of the world still has, and even we used to have here in the U.S., which is what happens when we're dealing with people on very different levels. And they're not just people in this case, they're people in robots. Well, some of how we interact with robots, some of the ways in which we take shortcuts and become rude, will some of that leak into the way we interact with people. So that, unfortunately, as a side effect of dehumanizing robots themselves, which, after all, they're not human. There's nothing inherently ethically wrong with behaving a certain way with a robot. But Will the fact that we get accustomed to that habituate us to a new way of interacting that makes us much less ethical as humans when we interact with humans? And that's a, that's a possible future that can come up. 
because we've never had this, we've never encountered this world in which we have a whole new species with which to experiment with kind of a rudeness or, or a curtness in a way that we've never had before. So you want this book to start the conversation about how the public should think about a future with robots. For those in the industry, the roboticists who are actually building the next generation, what are some of the things they should be thinking about to diminish what I would call the, some of the more dystopian scenarios you write about in the book? One of the interesting things about robotics is that it comes out of a multidisciplinary background, so it has kind of a history of people working together across disciplines, and yet the disciplines that it selects from are mostly the engineering disciplines, computer science, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, maybe some psychology, if you're lucky. The problem is suddenly robots are relevant to society, and yet extremely few roboticists have either a background in sociology or training in ethics or even training in business ethics, or design, or interaction design, or human factors. And so fundamentally what needs to happen is we need the people who are inventing our future in technology, especially as it's going to have direct impact on things like chronic underemployment and how humans will relate to other humans. We need them to directly work with designers, with human factors specialists, with sociologists, so that we can actually chart a course that sociologically, ethically, and in terms of design, makes sense. You know, car engineers figured this out a long time ago. They don't work without a human factors person in the room, without a designer and interaction designer in the room, so that we make the car safe to use, so that we make sure people have the right situation awareness in the car. And that's not engineering. That's psychology. That's sociology, cognition. In a way, robotics has become so successful now that it's having impact. It's no longer just in the walled garden of the university or, or even the industrial you know, research lab. So we have to do that. Uh, we have to include somehow these new skills, but it's a language and it's a way of thinking and a way of solving problems that I don't think roboticists and engineers are very comfortable with because it's not the training that they had. It's not the training their mentors had. And that's going to take a bit of a sea change, and, and I'm really interested in advocating for that. So hope for all us liberal arts grads that we might be able to work our way into ro the world of robotics. Yes. Ironically, as robots uh, chronically underemploy our, you know, high-skilled machinists and, and, and lasists, our liberal arts folks might finally have a job. Elon Norbosch, the author of Robot Futures, thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the questions. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can follow the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2013, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.